So we're going to get right into uh, our message today. We are actually beginning a brand new series today, which we're really excited about. Um, and actually, this is our first series in, uh, in quite some time. Uh, we had everything so beautifully planned out, and then uh, something called COVID happened and threw a complete curveball. And so we have just been trying to adjust accordingly, but I'm excited to get back into the rhythm of, uh, of series life. Um, and so I'm excited to jump in. So today we're going to start a brand new series, and this is going to take us through the next eight weeks. Uh, and so this is going to take us into the, the Christmas season, which is uh, already I'm getting excited for that. But um, some exciting topics we're going to get into. And so let me explain this to you real quick before we get into today's topic. The title of this series is Meet in the Middle. Okay, Meet in the Middle. And let me explain what I mean when I say that. Um, what we have noticed as we have been studying church history, um, as we look at our church culture today, and even as we study scripture ourselves, what we've noticed is it's really easy to take um, biblical topics and take them to one extreme or the other. Um, it, it, it's like the, the biblical pendulum, so to, to, to say, it swings very easily to, to one side or the other, and there are some really serious dangers that we can walk in when we take ourselves to these extremes. And again, this is something we've seen throughout uh, the history of the church. If you go back and, and look, you'll see centuries where the church would take a topic to one extreme, and then the next generation would try to correct, but they would overcorrect, and then it would go far to this side, and back and forth we go. Um, we see this today. If you go to one church, you might hear one extreme. You go to another church, you hear another extreme. And, uh, and, and even what's interesting, especially in our country, is you can go to the West Coast, and there's kind of like a West Coast church culture, and then there's an East Coast church culture and a Southern culture, and it's kind of different. And so all of this kind of leaves us asking the question, well, what is right? Like, what is, what is true with all of this stuff? And so our aim with this series is to take these topics and meet in the middle, okay? We want to figure out specifically what the Bible has to say about these things so we can kind of right-size and really find the middle ground of what God was ultimately aiming to show us, okay? So that is ultimately our goal over the next eight weeks, and we're going to be getting into some, some pretty big topics, so you're going to want to be here for these things because I think they're going to give us some great wisdom. But today, we're going to really jump right in. I don't have any time to waste, um, and so we are going to start with week one on the topic of God's wrath versus God's grace, okay? God's wrath versus God's grace. Now, before we dig into this, I want to kind of set the right expectations for this message and for this series kind of as a whole so that we kind of are on the same page before we begin. With almost all of these topics, including today's, um, I just want to be clear, our goal is not to show how these things conflict with one another. Our goal is actually to show how these things come together, okay? And so even though we're, we're saying God's wrath versus God's grace, I don't want you to get the picture that they're like waging war against each other and we're sitting here waiting to find out what wins, okay? That's not what we're saying. What we're trying to do is we're holding the proper tensions in place so that we can see the whole truth of what scripture is trying to show us. And that can be a difficult thing to do, but this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately 
I think it's interesting how as we read through scripture and we do our studying, we kind of have the inclination to want to make biblical topics like black and white. Like there's this clear line in the sand. This is absolutely right. This is absolutely wrong. And in in many, many cases, there's a great deal of nuance that we have to work within, that we have to discern what is true and right, which is what the Holy Spirit does in and through us. It enlightens the pages so that we can really see what is true. So again, we wanna hold the tensions in place so that we can ultimately see what God is trying to show us in that middle ground, okay? The other thing I just wanna throw out real quick, which this really shouldn't need to be said, but I'm gonna say it anyways. As we go through this series and today, you will see we're gonna go through a lot of scripture, Okay, so I know sometimes that can throw people off, but the truth of the matter is if we are seeking for answers, if we're seeking for the truth, we must rely upon scripture because I I promise you, I do not want to stand up here and give you my theories on all of this stuff. I will fail miserably, but if we rely upon scripture, then our path will be enlightened. Okay, so before we get into today's topic, why don't we just say a quick word of prayer So if you could just bow your heads, close your eyes with me, even at home, if you could pray with us. Heavenly Father, so grateful for uh, allowing us to feel your presence today. Just a beautiful, a beautiful sense of your presence in this place, and we're so grateful for it. We never want to take that for granted. And right now, I just pray that you would open up all of our hearts and minds to receive what you have for us today even the difficult things that sometimes are difficult to hear, I ask that you would soften our hearts to receive it the right way so that we can draw closer to you, that we can understand you more and more and be more equipped in this mission that you've called us for. We give you all the glory, all the honor, and we thank you so much for it ahead of time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Okay, so here is kind of the approach we're going to take. We're going to kind of split these things apart. We're going to dig into one first, then we'll dig into the other, then we'll figure out how exactly they come together. And so let's start with the topic of God's wrath, and let's really figure out what Scripture shows us around this particular attribute of God. And so the first thing that we need to understand with this idea is that God's wrath is a reality in scripture, okay? It is a reality in scripture, so this isn't something that somebody made up as a scare tactic or to strike fear into the hearts of people. This is something we see in scripture, and I think the best way that we can understand God's wrath is to simply say that God intensely hates all sin and disobedience, okay? He hates all sin and disobedience. Now, hear me, I did not say that he hates sinners, Okay, that's an important distinction to make, and and we very strongly rely upon that distinction, but he does hate sin. In fact, we see over 600 references of God's wrath within the context of Scripture, which is to say it's, it's actually a pretty prevalent topic as we read through the Bible, okay? And so let's just go through some of these so that we can see it again. I don't want you to take my word for it. And so let's start in the Old Testament. Let's go through a couple of these examples. We'll start in Exodus chapter 32. And just to kind of set the stage real quick, what we see here at this point in history is Moses is meeting with God on the top of the mountain and and God is gonna pass over his laws to Moses to then take down to the people to obey and command and live their lives. In the meantime, the people are at the bottom of the mountain and they have created for themselves an idol that they are now worshiping. 
bad, right? Not supposed to be doing this. And so watch what Jesus says to Moses. This is verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. That my anger may burn against them. This is very strong imagery that we see in this scripture, right? That his anger is burning towards the people because of their disobedience. Let me go to another example, 2 Kings chapter 22. This is a very interesting point in history because what's happened is the, the, the people of Israel have now been living their lives without the book of the law. Okay, so they are kind of flying blind here. And this particular king in history finds the book of the law. He reads it and begins to see, oh my goodness, we are on the wrong track. Okay, so watch what he goes on to say in verse 22, uh, chapter 22. Go inquire of the Lord for me and the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book. It's the same imagery. His wrath is burning against them because of their disobedience, because they're not listening to his commands. One more example, 2 Kings chapter 17. This is a pretty clear one. People are doing evil things. They're practicing evil things. And watch what it says in verse 18. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. He was very angry with Israel. So we see this, I mean, very clearly. These are three examples. We see far more than this, but this is a, a clear attribute that we see of God in Scripture. And what we see ultimately is that he is serious about upholding his commands. He is serious about having a people that would be humble and would be obedient. And where that didn't exist, we would see the wrath of God come to light, okay? Now, some of you are probably thinking, well, yeah, but that's the Old Testament, right? And we all know the Old Testament, that's the wrath testament, right? God is always angry. He's, he's always mad at the people. But ironically, when you really put the Old Testament and New Testament into perspective, if you take a few steps back and you look at the whole scope, it's actually interesting what we find because actually what we see is just as the New Testament really enlightens and, and illuminates God's love and his and his grace and his desire for relationship, right? We see that so beautifully. In the same way, the New Testament actually enlightens his wrath and his justice. It's, it's something that we don't always pay attention to, but this is absolutely what we see. So let's talk about this for a second so you can understand where I'm coming from. And let's just start with the idea of how God's wrath shows up today. Like in the present, how this applies to our lives today we're going to go to Romans chapter 1. We're going to spend a lot of time in Romans today, so you might even want to write down these scriptures so you can go back and, and read through and get context. I would encourage that. But Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Okay? So the wrath of God is revealed or is being revealed because of these things. So what Paul is showing us is there is an active present sense of God's wrath that is on display, which is to say that God's wrath didn't just end when the Old Testament moved to the New Testament. It continued on, and we see this in our lives. 
And actually in the context of Romans 1, what Paul goes on to show us is something very interesting because actually what he, what he shows us is that God's wrath many times is revealed in the things that he gives us over to. So let me explain what I mean when I say that. God tries to enlighten the path in front of us so that we walk in his ways and that we stay away from, from pain and from heartache. He tries to lighten that path. But as our stubbornness continues and as our callousness towards him persists, he doesn't strike us down. He doesn't just smite us, right? But, but what he does is he just gives us over to the things that our sin is carrying us towards. He just gives us over to the things that we want to participate in. And so it's kind of like we take ourselves from, from out from under the covering of God. We've got this. We, we're fine. We can figure this out. And actually in this way, God's wrath is revealed in our lives. It's a very interesting thing that we see in terms of this attribute. But really the true revelation of God's wrath in the New Testament is not seen in the present. It's not seen in what he gives us over to even, but it's really seen in what is ultimately to come. This is real, the, the, the real enlightenment of his wrath is seen. And so let me go to Romans chapter two, starting in verse five. This is what Paul says. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. This is pretty interesting what Paul is showing us, that we are storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of judgment. It's a scary, scary thought to contemplate. But this is something that Jesus even shows us in John chapter 3. This is a, a huge chapter in the Bible, right? We see a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. I would encourage you to read through that awesome stuff. We see John 3, 16, maybe the most popular scripture in all of the Bible. But watch later in that chapter what Jesus says. He says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So if you believe in the son, you'll have eternal life. If you do not obey the son, you will have wrath abiding on you. That's a, that's a, a scary thought. What he's saying is God's judgment will be given. And in this way, God's wrath will be seen really like never before. The, the, we will see God's wrath like never before. His wrath, his judgment, this is what we will see. And so yes, God's wrath is a reality. We see this clearly in scripture, past, present, future. This is something that is clear to us. But I wanna talk about what error we can walk in if we misunderstand this topic, okay? What, what are the dangers if we take that pendulum too far to this side of things? And there are a couple of things that, that I think are important to understand. As we read through these accounts of scripture, right? It's evident, it's right in front of us. We, we read through these things or even... Even if we just think about the idea of an all-powerful God who also displays wrath. Like, just think about that for a second. And as we contemplate these things, I think what we can begin to do sometimes is look at God as this, like, fiery, fly-off-the-handle God 
that we can't trust, right? He's, he's not sensible, he's not fair, and we constantly have to worry about stepping on his toes. And if we do, then, then we're gonna get struck down. And we can kind of walk down that error of thinking. And this is honestly the way many people view God. This is, this is really where people find themselves in their pursuit many times. Even an honest, genuine pursuit of God can be affected by this idea. You're afraid and, and you're scared and you're bitter. And this is obviously very damaging to the relationship that he really wants to have with his people. And so because of this, because over church history, we've seen people walk in that air, at times what has happened is, is we try to just like rip God's wrath right out of scripture. Just like tease it out. That, that's not in there, right? This is not worthy of him. We shouldn't talk about this or discuss it. And that's kind of the overcorrection that we've seen at times. But the problem with that is that God and the faithful writers of scripture never felt the need to walk on eggshells around this topic. Like they, they never felt the need to try to stay away from this or try to hide from this. And so the question is, how exactly should we view God's wrath? What is the correct way to put this into perspective and understand this attribute of God? And so here's what you need to understand, and this is what you need to settle really in your heart as you think about these things. But listen, God's wrath is always, without exception, 100% of the time, God's wrath is always righteous and just. It's always righteous and just. Remember, we talked about at the beginning how God hates sin and disobedience. This is what his wrath is. It's always righteous and just. And so let's go to Romans chapter 3, and uh, this is what Paul says. The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Now watch his determination. May it never be. He, he is never unrighteous. This isn't how it works. So listen, he's never out of control or compulsive. It's not like he has a bad temper or if he has a bad day, he's going to take it out on his children. That's, that's not how this works. That's not how God operates. It's very, very different than this. Um, one of my favorite books, especially as it relates to the character of God, is called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. I would encourage you to, to go and read that. It's pretty deep, so it might take some time, but I really think it's enlightening. But watch what he says around this attribute of God. I think this is really, really fantastic. He says, God's wrath in the Bible is never the impulsive self-indulgent, irritable, morally ennoble thing that human anger so often is. It's never that. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil, okay? So it's, so it's never what we so often see where it's somebody flying off the handle, it's somebody being compulsive. It's never that. It's always a correct and right response to evil. In other words, if God had no wrath, then he could not be holy and just. If there were no consequences for disobedience, no consequences for sin, he could not be holy and just. Those things have to work together. And so maybe think about it this way. Maybe this will personalize it a little bit for you. But would you not be a terrible mother or father if you didn't care when your child was abused or victimized? Like if you didn't care, if you were just indifferent to that, would you not be a terrible parent? Would you not be a bad person if you didn't care about a horrible injustice 
that was happening in front of your eyes, like something terrible is happening and you're just indifferent. You don't care. Wouldn't you be like an objectively bad person if that were happening? And in the same way, we see God's wrath rise to the surface, not because he's mean and short-tempered, but actually because he's loving and just. These are the very things that lead to his wrath. In fact, it's very important that we right-size his character, that we really understand who he is. And let me give you an example of this. The Bible tells us in 1 John that God is love. This is maybe one of the biggest revelations of God's character that we see in Scripture. God is love, which is to say he's the standard of love. He's the pinnacle of love. He himself is love. And that does not change. There's nothing that can change that. Now listen, in no way does Scripture speak of God's wrath in that vein. Scripture does not say that God is wrath. It doesn't say that. And so listen, God's wrath is expressly dependent upon our sin and disobedience. So whereas God's love is independent, it's not contingent upon anything, it will never change, God's wrath is contingent upon our submission and obedience or lack thereof, okay? So this is important that we really right-size who he is so that we don't have a bad view of his character, okay? So hopefully we, we've got a decent understanding of, of God's wrath, of of what that is, why we see it in scripture, how it fits with the rest of his character. Because now I want to hit the pause button there and I want to talk about our other subject today, which is God's grace. Okay, now this is probably a topic we've heard a lot more often in church, right? We talk a lot about God's grace and for good reason. But I want to really get down to what this truly is and what it means for us as people of God, okay? So let's just start by answering the question, what is God's grace? Grace, even though we've heard it a million times, what does this really mean? And I think this is the best definition that I found. God's grace is his goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. Let me say that again so you can just begin to comprehend that. God's grace is his goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. Now, maybe you've heard it described as unmerited favor, right? It's favor that we didn't merit. Um, or blessings that you've received that you don't deserve. All of that is true. It's, it's in this same realm of what God's grace truly is. But I wanna start by just talking about a very general universal sense of God's grace. And many would call this God's common grace, okay? So let me explain what that means. Maybe you can look at it this way. Um, this can be a sobering thought when you really dig in, but it's true. I want you to ask yourself the question, when you're, you're really thinking about it, if you're really honest with yourself, is there really any good thing in your life? Is there really any blessing that you've received that you truly deserve? Let me ask it again. Is there any good thing in your life that you truly deserve? Think about that. Reflect on that just for a second. Because I think I know some of you well enough to know that while you respect God's grace and while you would say, I'm so thankful for God's grace, you're also simultaneously thinking, well, yeah, I kind of I have earned a lot of things. Like, I work really hard. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty smart. I'm pretty accomplished. Like, yeah, I kind of look around, and I'm proud of what, what I've done. And I understand that, that thought, and I'm not trying to take anything away from you. I think to some degree you're, you're justified in that. But really at the heart of things, like at the core of things, there's a big problem with that thought process. And that problem is, is scripture. 
So let me kind of break this down for you so you understand what I'm talking about. Let's start by talking about your merit. Let's start by talking about what you've really earned for yourself, okay? Let's see what scripture has to say. Isaiah 64, 6 says, for all of us have become like one who is unclean, all of us. And all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, which is to say all of those good things you think you've done, all of those righteous deeds that you think you've done are but filthy garments in the eyes of God. It's disgusting. That's how God sees it. That's your merit. But Paul's gonna dig into this even more in Romans chapter three. Now he's quoting an Old Testament uh, set of scriptures and Psalms. Watch what he says. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. Listen, there is none who does good. There is not even one. There's, there's none who does good. That's your merit. Now, maybe if you're not willing to hear any of this other stuff, you'll hear the very words of Jesus because this is what he says in Luke chapter 18. No one is good except God alone. No one is good. This is your merit. This is what you've supposedly earned, which is to say nothing. Or, or if anything, it's filthy garments, disgusting rags. That's what you've earned. And so it begs the question, well, then how do I have good things in my life? If I haven't really earned it, how do I have these blessings in my life? Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This is what Paul says. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. So yeah, you, you do good deeds. You have sufficiency in everything. But why? Because of God's grace. It's because of his grace. But Dustin, I, I, I work so hard. I'm the hardest worker that I know. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, in fact, I worked harder than all of them. I'm the hardest worker I know, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. He even looks at his hard work and he says, this is the grace of God with me. And then maybe the definitive one, James 1, 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Every good thing we have, every accomplishment, every blessing, every material thing is given by way of God's common grace. He freely gives it to all of us. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. And yet he pours out blessings upon us because of his goodness. That applies to all of us. Maybe this will help you understand why we always talk about how good he is. Well, we, we're always singing about it. We're always talking about it. Maybe you understand now why scripture says, in all things, give thanks to God. In everything, give him glory. This is why, because his grace is this rich. But within the context of today's message, we really need to talk about a different aspect of God's grace, which is his saving grace. Now, this is probably how we more understand the word in the church context but, but this is something that's really important. Now, where God's common grace is applied to all, his saving grace is only applied to those who put their faith in him, okay? And so this is what God's saving grace is. It's very simple, but, but very, very important. It is simply his free gift of salvation to those who would believe in him. It's a free gift of salvation for those who would believe in him. 
You haven't earned a thing. You don't deserve it. And yet he freely will give it to you. Now let's see what scripture has to say about this. Going back to Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 23. It says, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now again, there's your merit. Understand, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short. Watch what he goes on to say. They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We are saved by grace because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. This is what Ephesians 2, 8 says. I'm positive you've heard this before. For by grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. He freely offers you salvation. I want you to think about the level of grace that we're talking about. Like, get out of your head the, the, the old meaning of grace and what you've always thought about. Think about the level of grace that God has to look over all of your mistakes to look over every single time you've messed up, every single time you've sinned. I want you to compare that with the level of grace that we have for one another. Because for so many of us, all you have to do is mess up one time and it's game over, right? Either you're loyal to me or you're not. Either I trust you or I don't. That's the level of grace many of us have. And even those who are more laid back, it's not much more. Our patience runs thin and we eventually give up. Now think about a lifetime of egregious sin and disobedience that God freely overlooks in your life. That's his grace. That is his saving grace. Now you might be thinking to yourself, how in the world could we take that topic to the extreme? Right? How in the world, if this is what this series is about, how could we possibly take that idea too far? And in many ways, I don't think we can. I'm, I'm not really sure that we can overdo or oversell the message of God's grace. It's that radical, okay? But at the same time, I do think there's one potential pitfall that we can get into if we misunderstand this topic. And I think it's only in the most extreme cases. I'm not even sure how prevalent I would say this is. But what can happen is if all you've ever heard about is God's grace, if that's all you know about him, if that's all you're willing to accept about him, then I think the danger is that you can create for yourself a powerless, indifferent God that just freely overlooks all of your sin. In other words, my sin must not be that important if he just freely overlooks it, right? And so why would I even need to ask for forgiveness? It's, it's obviously not that big of a deal for him. And you almost begin to to see this teddy bear of a father that kind of just appeases you in your wrongdoing. And then all of a sudden you just start thinking, you know what? I might as well just keep sinning. I mean, his grace is going to cover it. I might as well just keep living this life this way if his grace is going to cover it. This is what Paul says in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? What's his determination? <laughs> may it never be. May we never understand grace that way where we are indifferent to our sin, where we allow ourselves, our fleshly desires, and just assume that God is going to cover it, may we never view grace this way. And so there's one final question we need to answer. What is the middle? What is the middle ground that we need to find ourselves in? 
And so I think we need to start, just remind ourselves what we talked about at the beginning. God's wrath is a reality. It it is real in scripture. We see this clearly, which is to say he is serious about sin. He is serious about submission and obedience. And you cannot overlook these things in scripture, okay? And, And if you're not willing to see this and if you're not willing to accept it, then what's gonna happen is you're eventually going to forget about the fact, listen, that our sin and disobedience is deeply and intensely offensive to God. Let me say that again. If you're not willing to see and accept God's wrath, you will forget that your sin is deeply and intensely offensive to God. When we choose to sin, listen, it's not like we're violating some sort of impersonal moral code. It's, it's not like I made a mistake and, oh, I just, I had a moral failure there. Whoops, I'm, I'm going to move on. No, what you did is you directly disobeyed your creator. You intentionally rebelled against somebody that created you and that loves you. Sin is serious. It's offensive to God. And without properly understanding his wrath, we so easily forget about that. And so we, we hold this tension in place, but we m- remind ourselves of the good news, which is, listen, a, 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 an impersonal moral code can't forgive you, but a close, loving, real God can. And this is where grace meets us in the middle. I wanna read you these scriptures that show us what I'm talking about. Romans 5, verse 20, it says, for where sin increased, listen, grace abounded, all the more. Where, where grace continued, where grace continued to rise, his gra- or sin, I'm sorry, his grace covered it all the more. Watch what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. It's, it's enough. I don't care how much sin is in your past. I don't care how much wrath you have stored up for yourself. God's grace is sufficient. It will abound all the more. It will cover it thoroughly and completely if you put your trust in him. Listen, there is no sin that is too great. There's there's no amount of shame. Hear me right now, hear me. No sin too great. No amount of shame that God can't cover. He's enough. He's sufficient. I want to read one more scripture to you. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 8. We read this a couple weeks ago. It says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now let's just stop there and think about that. Think about the level of grace that we're talking about. While we were yet sinners, in our sin and disobedience and our shame, Christ died for us freely. We can't even comprehend that level of grace. But then watch what he goes on to say. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We we, we will be saved from the wrath of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Here's the real answer to our question. What is the middle? Jesus. Jesus is standing in the middle. Through his death and resurrection, 
we can receive his saving grace, which saves us from the wrath of God. Can you just close your eyes right now? I just want to spend some time reflecting. I know that we went through a lot of scripture today and went through a lot of information, but I just, I want you to reflect on one thing. Every single one of us is aware. I really believe this. Every one of us is aware of our mistakes and our failures. I mean, I think we're more aware than anybody else of all the mistakes that we've made. And I'm pleading with you that you would not allow that to be a barrier, but that instead you would run towards God's grace. Because I promise you, it's sufficient. It's enough. It will abound all the more. And so right now, if you're struggling with things that you've done, if you're struggling with maybe even the things that are active in your life right now, I would just encourage you to repent. Just encourage you to ask God for forgiveness. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. His grace is enough. And when we do this, we turn and we put all of our faith in him, knowing that he's enough, knowing what he's accomplished, we submit to him freely. If he's willing to do that for us, if he's willing to die on the cross, he's willing to give my life too. Can you just talk to him right now? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful. So grateful for your amazing grace. Lord, I don't deserve a single thing from you. I haven't earned a single thing. But I rely upon you. 